0: Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today I get to wrap up a series that we kicked off at the beginning of this month called Filters. And the idea of Filters has simply been around this idea of things that get in the way between how we see the world or how the world sees us. And that whether it's fun filters on a smartphone or whether it's the the psychological filters that's always underneath the surface or the spiritual filters that are affecting how we live out our, our spiritual relationship with God, Filters matter. In fact, I came across um, kind of a collection of studies this past week, somebody highlighting the fact that when um, 67% of men and about 25% of women, when they were put in a laboratory room and they were given an option just to sit there for a long period of time and think, or to um, touch something that caused electrical shocks or some type of negative stimulation, that 67% of men and 25% of women preferred the negative stimulation over sitting there alone with their thoughts. And I think what those studies illustrate is that some of us would rather prefer some type of negative stimulation in our life, some type of kind of distraction in our life, than to deal with some of those filters that bubble up when we're just sitting there. Because it's really easy to to not notice the filter. That's what filters are there for. You, You don't see them. It takes something for you to notice them. And today, I want to take you to a story that was almost about 2,500 years ago, almost 2,800 years ago, to be exact. And it's in the midst of this very ancient story that a filter is highlighted that I think is perhaps one of the most powerful filters in your life and in my life. It's a story that's tragic and extreme, but it's in the tragedy and the extreme that I think we see an example of how we can start to become aware that there's a filter there in our lives, too. It begins, and it's recorded in the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel is um, a part of a two-volume set that's primarily chronicling King David, who was one of the most famous kings in Israel's history, his rise to the throne, and the subsequent kind of tragic moments that happened leading up to his death and the passing over to Solomon, his son, to take over. It's in 2 Samuel that the the book takes kind of a downward turn. 1 Samuel, if it was a soundtrack, is upbeat, it's triumphant, it has expectation and hope. There's like, man, good things are happening, Goliath is slayed, right? David is rising, everything is up and to the right. And then 2 Samuel kind of begins this very steep decline. And it's in the midst of the steep decline that we have one of David's lowest moments in 2 Samuel 15. And it begins this way. It says, In the course of time, Absalom, who's one of David's sons, provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He would get up early and he would stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Now, the city gate was a place of influence, it was a place, it would be the idea of cheers and the Supreme Court, right? So legal cases were often decided there, but it's also where you went to spend time and to hang out and to see one another. It was the ancient equivalent of a big old like stoop that everyone in the neighborhood would come to to, to talk, to catch up, but also to kind of flesh out legal matters. And while Solomon's, while Absalom's there, it says, when anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, hence the kind of courtroom setting, Absalom would call out to them, say, what town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. And then Absalom would say to them, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no one representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who has a complaint or case would come to me, and I would see that they receive justice. Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. And over the course of four years, he wouldn't just try to steal the hearts of the people of Israel, he would actually steal Israel too. So at the end of four years of this being a regular daily practice, Absalom would lead a coup and overthrow his father. And in the aftermath of that coup, Absalom would lose his life and he would end up being buried here, which is a tomb on the Mount of Olives that you can still see today, almost 2,800 years later. And how does someone who is the smart, talented, bright, thoughtful, incredibly handsome, according to kind of the biblical text, how does someone who has everything going for them, who justifiably would have been seen in the eyes of many as the very natural heir, he was um, kind of in the lineage to take over as the king, how does someone who has everything going for him turn and ultimately end up? in a place like this because of a failed coup? And part of the answer is actually found in this. In 2 Samuel 15, 1, there is an interesting phrase that I want us to spend some time processing through. It says, in the course of time. You see, what looks like for us in 2 Samuel 15 is this moment has really been this growing movement in Absalom's life in the course of time. That Actually, what we really have here is not one moment. It's about 14 years in the making. I love it when I hear people say, oh, he was an overnight success 20 years in the making. Because oftentimes, that's what overnight successes are. We have a tendency as humans to, to kind of like over, over kind of estimate. and Oh, well, you know, they're overnight success. But in reality, when you kind of spend time interviewing or listening to them, you realize, oh, for 25 years, they've been doing this. And they've been working hard at this skill. And that this is where Absalom is. He's a 14-year overnight coup story. And what Absalom illustrates for us is this filter that is at work in all of us. And if we're not careful, and if we don't do the work to work it out, it will work itself out in our lives. And it's this filter of our past. See, what Absalom did not realize is that the past is not behind you the past is in you. You haven't moved on. You haven't gone past your past. It's still present. And many of us don't notice the past that's still present in our lives. We don't notice how growing up, our parents demanding, kind of exerting control of our lives. As adults, we're still in a place trying to earn their approval, or never feeling like we're good enough. We don't realize that it continues to play out in how we parent. We don't notice that We never stop to ask the questions, why am I so driven? What am I driving for and towards? What am I trying to prove? You see, the past is not behind you. The past is in you. Your past is always present. And for Absalom, this filter was the truth. And I want you to understand a little bit of his story because it'll bring to life this moment for us. You see, if you jump back almost 10 years There is a moment in Absalom's life. You see, Absalom had a sister named Tamar. Uh, Tamar was beautiful. She was the only daughter of King David. She was the princess of the empire, the only one. And she had a very special place in society. And yet, one tragic moment in her life ends up ripping all of that away. She's brutally attacked, and because of so, in, in that ancient culture, she's kind of marked with a letter that she can never get rid of. And Absalom is her older brother, and he watches what plays out in her life. The tragedy, the pain, and the fact that she isn't accepted. She's rejected by everyone. And so what happens in verse 20, 22 of chapter 13, it says, and Tamar lived in her brother Absalom's house. So Tamar, what happens to her, causes her to have to flee, and she ends up living with her brother, the only place she can find to stay. And we, we find out that she's a desolate woman, which is a really interesting phrase, because what that tells us, kind of historically, reading this text, is that she would never marry, she would never have children, and that she would live the rest of her life um, essentially as kind of a, a hermit in shame. And that this was a tragedy. Now, what's fascinating is it says, when King David heard all of this, this being about the attack, when he hears all of this, this reality of what's happened to his only daughter, it says that he's furious. And Absalom never said a word to Amnon, who was the person who attacked her, either good or bad. And he hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister, Tamar. Now, I want you to notice something. King David heard all of this. He was furious. There's no other sentence. David the warrior. David the victorious, conquering, slaying Goliath, facing the giants. That King David doesn't do anything. He's just mad at what happens. And this is really important because you have to understand the ancient world was different than the world we live in today. The king was the legal system. The king was justice embodied. And for David to be angry but to be marked by inaction was the reason Tamar would live out the rest of her life as a desolate woman. The king was the only one who could have stepped in and transformed the situation. He was the only one who could have stepped in and brought justice. And what happens? Well, he's mad, but he does nothing. And for two years, Absalom stews in this, and his hatred grows. His frustration mounts, and one day, he kills Amnon. Even though he's a prince, it's still illegal, and so he ends up having to flee. And for two years, he, Tamar, his sister, his family, live in a foreign country, completely disconnected from King David. And yet, King David does nothing. He's passive. Eventually, some people set into motion to try to kind of mount a campaign to get Absalom to come back, and Absalom shows back up. He, after two years, moves back to Jerusalem. And we find in verse 27, 28 of chapter 14, as the story's progressing, that three sons and a daughter were born to Absalom. And listen, his daughter's name was Tamar. This isn't the past for Absalom. It's the present. His sister lives with him. And every day he's reminded of the injustice that's been done to her. Of the pain and the shame and the desolation that she carries. And knowing that in an ancient world, one of the biggest kind of letters of shame that oftentimes women carried were the fact that they had no family. And so what is... What does Absalom do? The only thing that he can do to give her a future, he names his daughter after her. And so every time he comes home, he sees his sister and he picks up his baby girl who is a reminder to him of his past. His past that's still present. His past that's still present in his house. It says that she grows up and she becomes a beautiful woman, just like her aunt. And that Absalom lives two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. If you're counting, this has been five years since Absalom fled. Five years have gone by. And nothing, nothing happens. Absalom lives down the street from his father. King David is literally just a few minutes walk from where his father, Son and his daughter live that he has not seen in five years. And Absalom, growingly frustrated by this, decides one day to get the king's attention. Again, king's not doing anything. So Absalom burns the field of his neighbor. Now, the neighbor that he lived beside was one of King David's prime advisors and commanders. And so one day, that commander walks into the throne room and David's like, why do you smell like smoke? He's like, let me tell you why I smell like smoke. Your son, the one you brought back here, who's lived there for two years, who's repeatedly requested to see you and you've ignored, he burned my field down today. And when I stomped over and said, why did you burn down my field? His response is, well, I've been here for two years and the king still refuses to see me. Maybe this will get his attention. And so, David and Absalom meet briefly. They embrace, and then nothing happens. Tamar is still a desolate woman. Injustice and the backstory is still very much present. The past is still there. They haven't gotten past it. They haven't dealt with it. They haven't worked through it. And it actually helps you to understand why Back in chapter 15, why we see Absalom say, if only I were appointed judge in this land, I would see that they receive justice. Why? Because every single day he goes home, he's reminded of the inaction, of the injustice of the current sitting king. He's done the only thing he could do to give his sister a future, which is to name his daughter after her. So every person who walks up with their grief and their gripe and their complaint and their injustices, he says, oh, if I were only the judge in this land, you can count. I would bring justice to this land. I would make sure something happened instead of the king who does nothing to your complaint. Had nothing to do with their complaints. The past is not behind him. It's in him. And it's still present. And he keeps fighting against that past. I don't even know if you'd have walked up to Absalom and you tapped him on the shoulder and said, Absalom, does this have to do all your righteous anger? Does it have to do anything with Tamar? He'd be like, no, no, no. Did you hear the story about how their crops were robbed? Did you hear the story about how their sheep were taken? This is an injustice. We need to stand up against it. He probably wasn't even aware That past filter was there. Because oftentimes we're blind to it. Because there's something dangerous that works against us. When you live in something long enough, like a fish, you stop noticing the water around you. You begin to think that's normal. You don't even see what's playing out in front of you, it's just what's expected. Because when I said that Absalom, when it said in the course of time that this was 14 years in the making, if you've been counting, it's only been about half of that. So where's the other years? Well, the other portion is prior to all of this. You see, Absalom and Tamar were teenagers when their dad, looking at a woman that he had no business looking at, goes and takes her. And kills her husband. They watch him cover it up. They watch him do nothing to bring about justice because he's the injustice that brought it all in the first place. They watch his passivity play out in slow motion. And they see, as teenagers, a pattern that plays out again and again in David's life. And it was just the norm. That's what dad did. That's what it meant to grow up in the house of David. Passivity. Issues get brushed aside and ignored. And most of us don't realize that when we step into our present moment, the past is still there with us. And that oftentimes in our personal lives in our families lives and even at the society. If you want to understand what's playing out currently right now in our society as a whole, you cannot look at this moment through the present lens. You have to understand the past is still present here. And that a lot of the disconnect conversationally happens when people force one frame and they're like, "Well, there's nothing going on. This is just the present." And they ignore hundreds of years of a backstory. The past is not behind us. It's in us. It's in you. It's in me. It's in our family. And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we'll play it over and over. Because what is normal gets repeated. What is normal gets done over and over again. They watched this with David. What David does with Tamar is the same thing he did with Bathsheba. And Absalom has been living with the weight of what's played out for years. And this filter is all that he sees. Because our natural tendency, right, to, to look at David's perspective, our natural tendency is to operate in what we thought was the norm. Normal used to be, its etymology, was, was a carpenter's term. And it was based in an objective reality. It was the right angle. It's how you squared everything. That was what normal was in carpentry. But when normal shifts out of woodworking and steps into our life, what begins to work out is this dangerous tendency for us to normalize what we grew up in, for us to normalize our parents' alcoholism, to normalize our parents' workaholism, to normalize the abuse, to normalize the the passivity and the conflict avoidance that we saw. And because it feels familiar, because it feels normal, it's what we do. We repeat it because that's what feels familiar. And it takes a lot to work against that kind of grain. But there is another way, and I want to tell you that story just briefly. And I said, Chapter one I walk down the street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in, I'm lost, I'm hopeless. It isn't my fault, and it takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It's my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter four. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. But there is a beautiful, beautiful thing about the Christian faith that makes this whole entire message different is that while the natural way is to simply repeat, while the natural way is simply behavior modification, there is a supernatural way that's distinct and different, a way that Jesus brings, a way of transforming from the inside out, not the religious confirmation of outside in, not the, I don't know if you have the same tendency, there's probably some police listening, so I'm going to go ahead and confess this. I tend to drive the speed limit when a cop is driving behind me. I don't know if you have that same. I am really good at, I mean, 10 and 2, signal lights like 5,000 feet ahead of time on the left, doing my arm out the window just to make sure. I'm like, you know, everything, slowly tapping my brake lights. I mean, if I'm doing anything remotely legal, I quickly conform to the law of the land in that moment. And the moment that cop goes past me and I turn and I'm like, whew, I resume what I was doing before. See, that's what religion does. Religion is about some external pressure, behavior modification, and outside-in transformation. And it only works when the pressure's there. It only works when the teacher's in the room. That's the natural way. It takes a lot of work, a lot of willpower, and it's chapter one, two, and three over and over and over again. And every once in a while, you have a chapter four the supernatural way, what Jesus comes and does, what was even part of a condemnation or criticism of his theology was that he came to bring new life. And he would use this illustration that would make it somewhat confusing for people listening in. He would say, I've come to bring a new birth. He wasn't literally talking about being born again, but he was talking about on the inside there is such a radical transformation that the only way to visually... Capture it with words is to say that there is a new birth, a new life is formed. The inside man or woman is transformed and changed. And that inside out means that you drive the speed limit even if there isn't a cop present. You behave when the teacher leaves the room even when the teacher's not present. Why? Because the reason you're doing it is different. It's inside out, which is what chapter 5 looks like. I walked down another street. I quit walking down the same street. Because I recognize that there is a filter that tends to cause me to drift towards roads that I shouldn't go before. But it's the only roads I've ever seen. It's the only roads I've ever seen. And that filter... That filter of the past that works over the course of time, the one that is present in our present moment, the one that is in us, not behind us, the past filter, unless we confront it supernaturally, tends to play out the same way it played before. Because here's the thing I know about you and I know about me. David probably did not want to fail his children. He probably on the inside was angry at what happened to his daughter but he had no power to do anything about it. He sat in that. He stayed in that. He lived in that. And that some of you don't like the way you try to escape the pain. Some of you don't like. You hate the way you failed your wife. You hate the way you failed your children. You've hated the way that you get stuck in these relationships over and over again that are just, the last guy was the same as this guy and the next guy will be the same as this guy too. And that there's this inner anger that we have. And the beauty of Christianity is the good news of that storyline is that that doesn't have to be your storyline. There's a different way, there's another road that you can walk down. And for me, this isn't just simply theoretical, it's theological, it's true, and it's transformational. And it's my own journey. I um, have shared many times before, just my life story, and that one of the specific things over this past year that um, I've been kind of processing through. So when I was born, my father walked out, didn't want anything to do with me. God kind of set me over the course of 30 plus years of a journey to bring healing in that and realizing some, some profound Kind of the past narratives over my life was I wasn't enough. I wasn't enough to keep him. I wasn't enough for him to stay. Like things that I never were taught, just things that I, were, that I caught. Right? Because that's, that's how the past filter works. No one sits you down and says, here's what, here's what it looks like to be dysfunctional and to avoid having conflict as a family, son. Pay attention. Write notes. I'm going to teach you how to be passive aggressive today, daughter. Right? Like you never were taught that. You caught that. And what I caught is I'm not enough. It affected relationships, it affected how I treated women, it affected my ability to form relationships with other people, but nowhere did it become more powerful than really in the last year, parts of it bubbled up in a way that i never experienced before. God had helped me to see that a lot of times the most painful things that I went through were the moments where I felt like I wasn't enough, and God has brought freedom in that. I can tell you, I don't know if I would have survived pastoring in a pandemic if I hadn't processed through I'm not enough was a lie because I'm not enough for this church right now. I'm not enough for this church financially. I'm not enough for this church. Leadership-wise, I skipped the class in seminary called pastoring through a pandemic. Like That's a joke because that wasn't offered because no one ever told me when I signed up for this thing. By the way, 2020, it's going to be a dumpster fire, and you're going to have to pass through it. Yay! Right, no one ever said that to me. Right? And if I had not internalized the lesson last year when God was helping me understand that most of my pain points come from moments where I don't feel like I measure up because I'm not enough, and how that was rooted in a lie that I call early in, I wouldn't be probably doing what I'm doing today. God, in his graciousness, took that lesson, and when I passed it, helped me to begin to work through a new one. And it was when my son was born. And I don't know what it was, but there was something different the day my son was placed in my arms a year ago. When I, when I was handed my daughter, I was overwhelmed and really terrified, and I drove 25 miles per hour all the way home because I was so scared to do even the speed limit with her in the car. But when my son got put in my arms, I realized for the first time, I didn't know what it was like to be a friend as a father. Like this idea, all these pain moments growing up where I would see dads and their son, and I realized that like, there's like this special bond that dads have with their sons. And then I'd hear guys who were older than my age talk about their dads as their best friend, and I'm like, what does that look like? And then I'm handed my son, and I realized, holy crap, I don't know how to do that. I don't want to be physically present but relationally distant. That's all I internally knew what to do. And so one of the things that I began to do over the last year is I've been able to pray and process and work through a lot of those tensions, but um, over each of my kids, I sing. And there are a few different songs that I sing to them. There's usually like a very like spiritually kind of over-encompassing song and then there's this like promise song that I sing and for whatever reason as I was processing one of the songs that bubbled up that I was came across was um James Taylor um it's like when you're down in trouble and you need a helping hand and nothing oh nothing is going right right this song and I would just I'd hold him at night and like You know, winter, spring, summer, or fall, all you got to do is call and I'll be there. Yeah, 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 yeah. You've got a friend. Like that, I've been singing that song for the last year over Henry because that's been my prayer. My prayer is that when he's 20, like I'm his friend, and that I'm parenting him with a hope and an expectation that the natural way that I know isn't going to be the way that I go. I'm parenting and I'm praying, believing that God is still in the work of taking dead things and bringing back to life, that he's still able to transform brokenness and pain and hurt and bring beautiful things out of that, and that maybe today you're you feel so stuck, you feel so trapped, and you so desperately want to be the father and the husband or, or the employee or the like, small business owner or the son or the daughter that you know you want to be, but you don't know how to do it, that there's another way than just the anger, there's another way than just the frustration and the subsequent surrender to whatever it is that you find escape through. There's a better way, a life-giving way. And his name is Jesus. And it's not easy, but it is so worth it. My son, when I read the story of David and Absalom and Tamar, I imagine that probably David's backstory David grew up in a house where he was ignored, where he was overlooked. As the youngest child, when someone comes to say, hey, God's told me someone in this house is the future king, they don't even call the guy. He's ignored. He's overlooked. So it's probably what he grew up in, and it's what he does to his kids. And unfortunately, it's what Solomon does too with some of the issues in his life. But the beauty of the Christian story is that we can stop being reactive. And step into a new storyline where we are the actor. For me, I've seen that play out in my life. And I've seen it play out beautifully, tenderly, and even painfully at times this past year with my son. And I want to help you. I want to journey with you. That's the joy of being your pastor. And I recognize, like many of you, I'm tired of email. I'm tired of people telling me, how they're making things safe so that I can show back up. I'm tired of kind of being inundated regularly with all these things I don't need. And one of the things that I've been working on this summer is trying to figure out a way of regularly connecting and inspiring you where you are. And I recently signed up for a service that um, I've been trying to get into for a while because it's the only text messaging service that, that is both personal and has an ability to structure and um, schedule and um, kind of talk to individual or groups of individuals and is simultaneously approved by all the telecom companies because that really matters that they you want your number to be safe to get through especially with all the kind of um, robot calls that have kind of jammed up the system so 1617 415 4441 is my number it's a special number that I've created If you text that number, here's what I want to tell you will happen. You'll get a response saying, hey, this is Chris. Obviously, it's an automated response because I'm standing right here. But it's going to tell you that, hey, thanks for texting me. Click on this link. Sign up. It's going to ask you to give a little bit of information. That information is not for me to steal your identity, but it is so that I can pray for you because this is in my phone. And when your birthday is your birthday, it will pop up and I will be praying for you on your birthday. And like this will allow me, as you click sign up, it pushes to my phone. And then once a week, during the middle of the week, I want to send you an inspirational thought. Not really long. It may be an inspirational video, two or three minutes. But the goal is I want to step into your life and help you walk out the Christian life. I want to be present if you have questions. I want to be present to give you guidance as you're processing through this. So this week, if you, if you text this number, 1617 415 if I'd have planned better, I'd have had a jingle, um, you know, and it would have been like, call 617-415-4441, you could be alive. I don't know, it just made that up, but not bad. All right, um, and so like if you text that number, Um, I'm going to send you something on Wednesday to take what we've talked about even further. And also, um, in that, I'm going to give you three books. One of the books you can read, um, if you're trying to process through your past, okay? So I'm gonna give you three recommendations on books that are really helpful processing through your past. And if there are enough enough of you who really wanna read those books, because I love reading books, I will start a digital book club with you, all right? And we will process through this in our little like safe huddle because I want to help you find freedom. I have found transformational freedom through Jesus. My chains are broken. My past has been redeemed. Because the beauty is a redeemed past produces good things. An unredeemed past just produces problems. And I want you to find the potential, the future that God promised. That you and I can experience that through Jesus. So I hope you text me. I hope to connect with you.